everybody listen to We're Not Wizards. Because we are the best. And we're not wizards. No matter what anybody says. Goodbye. another episode of we are not wizards my name's richard i'll be your host for august so uh joining me today there's been um i don't know it's been all of a sudden from out of nowhere we've been hit by several things there's been a you know a lot of weather there's been a lot of board games there's just been a lot of kind of artillery it can only mean one little thing i have potentially a tank above tanks coming into view and he's just raining down on me with his Euro games and his copies of Resistance and his little, it's almost like it's a barrage, basically. A barrage, <laughs> It's a yeah. barrage. I have got, <laughs> I've got Neil and Nyker from Board Game Barrage. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you doing, Richard? Oh, um... I'm kind of delighted because um, it was almost like um, Callan was kind of like, he was like the test run. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, well, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I feel like I like the idea that we're escalating towards Mark because you're peaking with me. <laughs> I'd like to think that uh, potentially um, Callan was the Star Wars New Hope of the board game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, love, I like where this is going, right? yeah. You're the kind of the... The kind of the the dark middle the dark, chapter, rather kind of sharp, you know, quite shocking, uh-huh. but ultimately uh-huh. much loved middle chapter of the game. Right, some and, some might say the only good one. <laughs> and then at the end, we're going to have furry little Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. He's going to be and like the people will wonder why they came. He's going to be like the Ewok of the peace, basically. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> what we call him, basically. <laughs> The Ewok of the three of us. <laughs> I did. I, I it was a it was a rumor I'd heard, um, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was funnily enough because I started that rumor as well. So that's always um, that's always. <laughs> that's always <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, I thought it had been coming from that direction. It was, you know, you let me into your Discord, and that's what's happening, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been w- wondering about that. It kind of seems like you've just been sort of like surreptitiously grabbing all of our, all of the gossip, all of our sort of secrets, and just. Using it against us, it seems. Um, it's not like that. I know it sounds like that. Mm. It probably is like that. That's probably uh, an actual kind of true thing. But we don't want to talk. <clears throat> we don't want to talk about what's happening just now. We want to like look further back than that. But first of all, the thing that we've got to mm. say is we've got to say hello to everybody who's out there and listening to us for the first time. And that's interesting because obviously you heard the name Board Game Barrage and you decided to skip Callan's episode to come straight to <laughs> ne- come straight to Neil and instead he's gonna be so angry. I can feel uh, he's gonna love it. I can feel the hate coming off him just now. I can see me getting kicked from the Discord server. 
I'm going to get barred or there's going to be some kind of name name changes going on. I'm going to be forever known as the horrific kind of wizard. But, you know, it's just one of those Uh one of those things. Um, But the reason that we do this is quite simply because um, there's there's not enough podcasts out there about board games. Um, I've checked. Right. It's impossible to check an Apple podcast since they've changed everything. It's just it's I thought I was going to have to dig a pit cover it with branches and stick a copy of um, Concordia over the top to try and entice people, but it didn't work. (laughs) So there you go. And the other reason that we do this is because um, I've been a firm... Ah, This is where I get sycophantic. I've kind of been a bit of a fan of your guys since I started listening to you with your kind of your, you know... It's, I know. That's awesome. Thank you. It's not. It's just, it sounds like a, you know, I say that to everybody that comes on, you know. <laughs> it's surprising I get through all of the podcasts that I supposedly listen to. I'm such big fans, but, you know, I do like the, I do like the way you approach things and we're going to cover that anyway. But we want to cover a little bit about your past, your okay, journey. How, how far back are we talking? Um, I don't know. Potentially, okay, well, I want to. I want to start. I kind of want to start, kind of back at the beginning because um, uh-huh. where you're, um, where did you first kind of get into the kind of the world of pressed and kind of printed trees? Kind of how were you, how were you kind of introduced to them and kind of like your mm, life kind of grown up and stuff like that? Yeah. So I'm trying. So as honestly as far back as i can remember we were sort of a board game family it was mm-hmm. uh, we would often play um i have two brothers so my, my two brothers and i would play with my mom pretty frequently but we all we had were the classics you know like monopoly cluedo mm-hmm. that sort of thing okay um pretty much because so I, I grew up in south africa and it's not that it was hard to get modern board games it's just that i just don't think we were really like culturally aware of them they weren't so- sold in stores mm-hmm. i would say um, so I, I feel like I wasn't really made aware of anything other than pretty much the basics until Magic the Gathering, um, which would have been probably my first first big hit into like actually getting into the hobby seriously, which would have been around about high school. Um, so I, I played I played Magic a bunch through high school and into college, and because the local store in college. Um, where we would buy Magic the Gathering cards from, they just happened to have a couple of import board games. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like me me starting to get excited for the hobby, but they were still super expensive. I remember my brother and I would always like, I, I don't know, like Twilight Imperium and be like, man, this would be cool, but it costed like the equivalent of a million dollars or something. <laughs> because it's South, it, Africa, South Africa Rand, doesn't it? Is it the Rand? Is it still the yeah, Rand? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's still the Rand, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, the, the conversion rate is, like, much worse than it used to be. But even, you know, uh, even the time I was growing up there, just everything ended up being twice as expensive as it would have been, you know, equivalent what was, um What was it like kind of growing up in South Africa? Were you kind of aware of kind of like the politics and stuff kind of going on at the time or was it a case that you kind of to you that was kind of like normal life things were happening and you were just kind of getting on with it yeah i i think i was i was fortunate enough to sort of have been at a young age 
during as it was basically ending so mm-hmm. i would have been around eight sorry i would have been around eight years old when the first democratic elections happened uh-huh. when uh, nelson mandela was elected so you know i was just on the cusp of really sort of seeing any of the really bad side of it uh so most of my most of my knowledge of it is just from my parents that said like we we grew up in a part of south africa that wasn't technically part of the country there were these sort of homeland states yeah um that that were you know basically separate um separate sort of uh countries that were like within south africa basically um and the, because my parents are of of uh they're a mixed couple yeah my dad's indian my mom was white so they couldn't it was harder for them to live in south africa at the time so i definitely was exposed to it even though i didn't realize it at the time like yeah i i whenever we would travel into south africa we were literally crossing a border handing in passports and somehow that just like all glossed over me until i was much older do you look back now on kind of like certain things that happened and at the time it was just like well this is normality and you were looking back now and going "Mm, that's actually (laughs) that's pretty questionable kind of what yeah absolutely like there was a bunch of stuff i mean that being one of them like just me not even realizing that we didn't actually technically live in south africa um Mm -hmm. and again like a lot of the sort of you know you know the atrocities of apartheid like i said i wasn't i wasn't really witnessed any of that except in retrospect except through like uh, you know, reflecting on the time in on the history and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think I was sort of blissfully unaware of it because I was fortunate enough to sort of grow up in a town that was very mixed in its population. Um, mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I guess, I guess I just wasn't super exposed to the worst of it. And I think a lot of that was quite deliberate on my parents' part, to be prob- to be honest. But uh, yeah. What was it? Um, you mentioned you went to college. What was it you... Did you? What did you major in? And were you still were you still so in I, South Africa at that time? Or, or, or? yeah. So when I went to I, I went to Cape Town mm. uh, to to the the University of Cape Town there to study. Mm. I, I had a really weird sort of track record in that I sort of started studying uh, physics and maths as my majors, and I had no idea what I thought I was going to do with that. I just I, I had this idea I was just going to be a scientist mm-hmm. and and I, I don't know what that even meant or what i thought that meant um but just sort of coincidentally i i picked up computer science and i ended up loving it so much that that became my major so i, I pretty much ended up specializing in computer science from that point on was there any particular kind of side to the computer science was it just the kind of the programming side of things or had a slight kind of creative flair had that kind of shown his head during the kind of the time as well? It was pretty broad initially. Um, where, where, what ended up sort of um, focusing my attention, especially once I sort of got it into you know, my third or fourth years, was I was always much more uh, 3D graphics mm-hmm. oriented. Mm-hmm. So my, my thesis in my final year was like a graphics project, um, which ended up, shaping a lot of what came after because that's how i sort of first started making contacts in like the 3d industry and uh visual effects at at local studios in cape town um at the time at least around my my second or third year i knew i wanted to get into video games because i was super big into video games just like you know as, as a hobby yeah um and i think that shaped a lot from that point on of me sort of trying to find a way to get into the industry which is where i ended up and how how did you end up getting into the the industry itself? I mean, were you butting your head to, head across a 
a lot of doors at the beginning or were you right place, kind of right time kind of person? I, I, to, to be honest, it was definitely the latter. Like I, I want to say I was... I was one of those people that was just, you know, trying, knocking on every single door yeah. and sort of uh, pushing myself down everyone's throat. But like, honestly, it was just, I, I saw a posting for the, a studio in, in Santa Monica and they happened to be, at the time, they happened to be using, they were, were investigating a, a 3D software, sort of effects software that I happened to be quite familiar with, right. just as a matter of course. It, yeah. And it was, it was at a time where this software wasn't that commonly used in games. So it was definitely, I just found the right point in time to apply and uh, yeah, that worked out. And they're also, they're, they're a studio that's pretty good about hiring internationally. So obviously that made a huge difference. So did you, you're effectively, are you then upping sticks, moving to Santa Monica completely yeah, from much. different, going into the completely different kind of country? Did you... Um, <clears throat> Was that an easy thing to do? Because I guess you're 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 kind of you're leaving your your brothers and your mother behind, and the, you're kind of your family behind. I'm guessing. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It, it was it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, um, because I mean exactly like what you said. It 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 was it was me changing careers effectively. Yeah. Um. In a in a country in a city where i literally didn't know anyone i have i have a couple of cousins in texas but that's pretty much it that's like literally the only people i knew in the u.s at wow. the time um and you know texas is not exactly close so it, it's it was practically like moving somewhere i literally knew anyone i, I think that there's one specific moment i remember like on the first day i landed in santa monica where, where obviously because the time difference is about nine or ten hours mm -hmm. so it gets to about five o'clock in the afternoon and I suddenly realized that everyone I know in the world is basically asleep, <laughs> and it's just—it was just this terrifying, like, sort of you know, thing. Just like, and at that point, I'm like, you know, I've come off the plane because the plane flight is 24 hours. Yeah, I'm just like drained and dead, and it's like I, I literally at that point like break down crying, thinking like, what have I done? I've made a huge mistake, type thing. Well, the, um, was the company quite supportive in getting you kind of relocated and? Getting your accommodation yeah, kind of no. sorted out and everything like that. Were they, you said they were quite quite supportive of doing that for you. A hundred percent, yeah. They, they they were pretty good about uh, you know I had I had accommodation sorted out for the first couple of months. You know, in a place that was literally across the street from the studio, um, allowance to get my stuff over. It, it, pretty much anything I needed, they were super good to take care of. Um, obviously, handling all of the visa issues, giving me the support I needed to get my ID and social security number mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they were great about it. I, I think they they did this fantastic job of just getting me, getting me on my feet pretty quickly. So, did you go in with the graphical design side of things? Were you going in kind of? Were you starting to show your kind of artistic flair by that time, or were you still look? I'm the technical go to guy on on how to use this kind of piece of software. So, so the interesting thing is. At that point, I would say I was already a little bit of a hybrid because mm -hmm. when I entered the 3D industry, so this would have been back in South Africa, it was purely from the programming perspective. Like I was just developing developing software for them. Yeah. But um, I, I started to pick up the 3D art over the course of that job. Mm -hmm. And the specific software is, is kind of like a hybrid of 3D work and programming a little bit. So it's actually almost like a it's hybrid software in and of itself. Um, so I'd already kind of like 
carved out that specific niche of being like, because what what I am right now would be called a technical artist, and it's it's almost literally that. Like it's a a artist that has more uh, technical, you know, more precise technical knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it's kind of what I do right now is a mix of three D work and still developing tools, basically. So I've kind of been like not not stuck in that game, but I've kind of been doing the same sort of thing, like even since even since back then. So you are you like saying if somebody says, okay, what I need to do is I'm about to have this entire scene is this person kind of creating kind of it's going to be made out of like a big plate of marshmallows, but I need mm-hmm. to know how to draw that and make that kind of look convincing. Are you the type of person that will say, well, use this tool here because this will. This will um, this will reflect the light in this certain part of way, but it'll still like it look like it's covered in ice and sugar kind of thing. Are you the type of person right. that is that the type of thing that you would kind of do if somebody comes to you with an issue? You're able to say, well, if we mix this bit with this bit and this bit, then this will help you get the kind of the texture that you're kind of looking for, kind of thing. So the specific thing that that's sort of not so the actual graphical look. So much isn't, isn't my area of expertise, but what one mine is is ha- having things move in a convincing way, and this is kind of where I guess to some extent the physics, uh, the the, yeah. the the few couple of years of physics I did actually pays off. But it's the way things move in a convincing way. So if that was a plate of marshmallows, it was getting it would be getting them to wobble in quite the right way as <sighs> the right, plate yeah. moves around. Okay, you know. Okay. Uh, so for mostly what this ends up being is. If a if you imagine like a wall collapsing, uh, you know, through an explosion or something, like having the the brick and the wood and all the underlying structure like collapse in a convincing way, um, that that's mostly what my department focuses on. Things that move in the world when the player like shoots them or interacts with them or bumps into them. Yeah, I kind of remember the um, when Half Life Two came out and everybody was just going absolutely crazy over how the different kind of um, the the different kind of materials had different properties and based on how you hit yeah. them and moved them, people were like, look, if you, they... if you smash this piece of wood, look where the wood goes and, and, it, and it kind of floats on the water if you hit it into the water. And it's like, right. if you push a rock, it does this. And it kind of, and it was kind of like, it was kind of revolutionary at the, at the kind of the time. Um, totally. I, I remember that like so specifically, because I mean, I think for almost anyone that sort of got into the technical side of video games like half-life 2 is such a is it's like a massive inflection point for a bunch of different like cool techs like that and mm-hmm. yeah i i remember that i remember like just devouring all of their tech videos like even before the game came out were you looking at for inspiration and ideas and stuff like that at the time i mean or have you i mean i take it working on a game because this is this is where it gets kind of interesting is this it's not like it's usually something that takes a number of years so is there kind of like breakthroughs that you've seen where people have taken kind of normal, you know, stuff that would take maybe kind of a lot longer to kind of make work and render and mm-hmm. just get the realistic movement of people continually coming in and just shaking up? The, they talk about disrupting the technologies, but have right. you seen a general disruption to a lot of stuff that you're doing of people kind of making it easier to kind of replicate kind of things or is that down to kind of like more yeah. kind of processing power and stuff like that no no i think there are there are definitely sort of specific technical points so i, I think so half-life 2 again that period of time around about the early 2000s that's when you start to see 
real-time physics become more and more prominent. And you get a bunch of big companies that that's their whole their whole thing is just mm. providing physics engines basically to these games like that i remember being a specific huge revolution um again like like graphical tech around about the same time as well stuff like you know vertex pixel shaders and things like that there were definitely like specific points i I feel like it's it's maybe been i don't know maybe cynically speaking it's been a little while since i felt there was like a big disruptive tech um there have been like a few contenders like i feel like Stuff like virtual reality has had the potential to be that, mm-hmm. but didn't quite maybe take off in the way people imagined it would. At least not yet. I mean, I'm sure it will get there. Um, but but yeah, I, I think those moments happen certainly. Um, in to the sense that it's like changed the way that uh, people do their jobs easier. I would say like one of the biggest thing that's happened in the time that I've been in the industry is actually very specifically focused on the sort of stuff I do, which is. Being able to like realistically like simulate physics, uh, so stuff stuff like when I when I sort of first joined the studio here, um, sort of doing fluid and water effects was still really hard to do. It was very very time consuming. There was no way you could realistically get that stuff into a game, and now it's now it's easy. Like we we do. I mean, okay, it's not easy. It obviously still takes a lot of t- very talented people <laughs> taking a lot of time to do it. But we, yeah, they they just push a button and it happens. It just happens. No, no, but it's, it's just like, well, you, <laughs> exactly. why don't you have more ripple effects? So you'll just, are you just saying people <laughs> just, are lazy? This is what you're saying. Aren't yeah, you? exactly. That's that, that's pretty much it. But <laughs> but 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 the, but the thing is, like, it, it's gotten to the point now where even just like a something like someone getting hit, you know, a blood effect would be like a simulated fluid, and that's that's crazy. Like something that would have been exclusively like an ocean or a big large scale effect is yeah. used as a matter of course now um and it's stuff like that's really really cool to see so you see you're seeing like very realistic like smoke simulation and fire in the games now and it's all because generating these effects have just gotten so much easier in the last 10 years i remember um and i'm gonna be honest with you um when the la the last of us which i know that you kind of um well last of us is one of my favorite games of all time yeah Oh, well, and um, full stop, you know. And one of the one of the things I remember is I remember there's a scene in The Last of Us quite, and it's just it's it's what just one of these ways of introducing a puzzle element where um, they they have to cross a part in a kind of like a sewer, and I think Ellie says I can't swim, so Joel mm-hmm. has to get Ellie on a crate and just start pushing her about kind of in the water. Right. And I remember spending about half an hour to 40 minutes just pushing Ellie around in this small expanse of water because of the way the kind of the water was kind of reacting and stuff like that and the way that all everybody was reacting. And to me, um, that was, it was kind of just like the little moments. It wasn't the big, huge, because it, um, Games around that time, there was a lot of big set pieces going on. There was sure, a lot of big sure. kind of grandstanding. There was very much a kind of an independence kind of vibe. And then one of the things I liked about The Last of Us is there was a lot of stuff where that was just very, very subtle little things, mm. which kind of, you know, um, things written on a wall or stuff like that, just the way the lighting right. was, just the way the winter level <laughs> 
you know, that whole level with just Ellie just kind of going like about. Just like how so subtly, yeah, commonly and like oppressive it feels. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, and, you know, and it was, I think it was, I just, um, yeah, I just, you know, it was, it was just absolutely kind of, it was kind of fantastic, which is why I'm kind of, did you, was it, did you work, I mean, how much involvement were you in the the original kind of Last of Us? On, on the Last of Us, you mean? Yeah. So, um, I, I was... I joined the studio while it was in production, but um, so I, I came in originally for Uncharted 3. That was my first game there, but they were at that point in time, and I don't think they had done this. I'm trying to remember. I don't think they had done this at any point before that where they were working on two games simultaneously. So the studio was essentially split at that point between people working on Uncharted 3 and The mm-hmm. Last of Us. Yeah. Um, but the, the games were staggered such so that once I finished up in Uncharted 3, I went on to, mm-hmm. say, the second half of The Last of Us. Uh, so yeah, I was definitely... Uh, I was definitely on that pretty solidly, solidly for the second half of the project, uh, which is typically when my department tends to get the most stuff to do is towards mm. the end of it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I think it it was a it was a super interesting project, especially coming off of Uncharted Three, because. I, so uh, the the thing you were describing with these big cinematic bombastic set pieces, like I think <laughs> so, un- Uncharted, yeah, that's Uncharted. That is, that right? is Uncharted. Yeah, that is Uncharted. Yeah. Really, and, yeah. Uh, absolutely and then uncharted 3 uh had the sense of trying to escalate so much of what was done in uncharted 2 which was to some extent like one of the first big cinematic set piece games um so coming off of that where you know you're blowing up a building every single week and everything is burning down all of the time to a game that is like you said just about the small subtleties I, i think that was one of the most it was it was one of the most it was a very specifically profound change because you suddenly have all these people that are so talented at producing these big, big moments, and then you have to condense those into these really, really small moments. So how does this wall subtly crumble in a way that's not, you know, it's not because Nathan Drake launched a rocket launcher at it. It's just because of the, you know, the passage of time. And like, as you subtly brush past it, like little pieces just of, you know, flake off. Yeah, yeah. Um, there There was something that was really, really cool about that. Um. Yeah, I, I think I think that specific of trying to sort of have big moments, emotionally speaking, but on a much much smaller scale. I think, like you said, that framed a lot of what what The Last of Us was about, at least to me. Mm-hmm. When you were um, when you were working on it, was there a general murmur to actually say? damn, this is, like, kind of really special. Because in terms of critically acclaim or critical acclaim that it got, I mean, it it it, it rated very, very well and very, very favorably, favorably across the kind of the media, mm-hmm. the press and critics in general. But when you, when you were working on it, was there any inkling, was there, a, you know, was there any inkling amongst the rest of the staff, yourself, you're saying, well, actually, this is, this is pretty, I mean, Uncharted is pretty cool, but this is taking us places, something kind of slightly differently, slightly, you know, slightly elsewhere. The, so, <laughs> um, th- there's this weird thing in game development where a, lo- a lot of it doesn't seem like an actual video game until very close to the end. Yeah. Um, because for 90% of the time you're working on a game, you're a character that's sort of like jankily moving through pretty much flat gray environments 
and everything's a little bit off like you hit a button and then things snap and and, and that's just that's just the reality of it like these mm. systems take a long time to come online and it doesn't all sort of coalesce until the end so honestly like if you know, I got the sense that this was definitely something different from, yeah. from a story perspective. This was something that hadn't been done before. Well, not necessarily hadn't been done before, but was very rare, like a a smaller scale, more adult story. So I, I had that sense. But that said, like a lot of, especially because the work I do is purely visual, I'm often just playing the game without any sound. So I, I wasn't getting the audio. I wasn't getting the story. I wasn't yeah. getting any of the dialogue. Um, and... I, I would only sort of be exposed to small parts of that, like the the overall narrative beats of the game. Like uh, genuinely, the, the ending of the game was a surprise to me until I played it. Um, it literally on a, a, as it was going gold. So some of that stuff I wouldn't have been super aware of. I could, obviously could have been if I had sort of tried to play through the whole thing. Um, but what was one of the things I specific? I, one of the things I specifically remember is that very close to the end of the project, like in the last couple of months, I remember playing through it. And I, I remember a lot of people had a similar sentiment. It was like, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this one. Like, it just doesn't feel like the action doesn't feel fun. Like, the the melee isn't quite working. And honest to God, like, a lot of that stuff only clicked into place in the last few weeks of development. Like, at some <laughs> point, someone just makes a very <laughs> subtle change. Yeah. And then everything just sort of comes together. Uh, I, I might be misremembering this, but I feel like one of the things that happened fairly late was uh, there are these enemies in the game that, can like instant kill you and it's it just it's like small changes that like tweak the combat in subtle ways just make it start to feel a lot more deadly a lot more interesting um so yeah i i've got to be honest like i i didn't think it was going to be the phenomenon it ends up being um until like literally the game was final and what you, i mean looking back on um i mean it's gone through the playstation 4 kind of um rehash like reskin the kind of thing yeah. the remaster and there's also been the kind of the additional kind of dlc i mean mm-hmm. um looking back on it is it is it something you're like yeah this is i'm, I'm really proud of this i'm really proud of what this achieved kind of thing um or oh 100 percent. yeah cool. yeah yeah no i i i think it's hard it's one of the hardest things to do is to play through a game you've worked on and sort of have any appreciable like critical opinion of it because yeah. i'm still you know, there were things in that game that I still look and I'm like, ah, oh, I could that could have been done better. I wish I had a little more time on that. That's like, what that, I was that's inevitable. Ask. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's horrible. It's it's because like the thing is, and uh, this is pu- purely like selfish perspective. But like you know, when some people say like, oh, this this game is one of the you know the my favorite gaming experiences, and I'm like. Yeah, but did you see the way that that little flag is moving on that third level? And it's it's like it's not quite reacting the way I want to. And they were like, "No, I I I didn't see that at all." And that's all I can see. You know? Do you not like kind of sit there and go, "But that was that was Frank that did that. Frank messed that bit up. I remember seeing Frank <laughs> yeah. work on the bit with the giraffes and the fra- and the flag." And he and I even said to him at the time, but no, he had to go and have a cigarette no, he didn't break. Didn't listen. You yep, know, exactly. He That's exactly. I, all, all I'm doing is just being mad at every other person in the studio every, <laughs> every single time I play it. No, that's not true, obviously. But, but but there is a little bit of that where you're just you're only <laughs> you're still only seeing the faults. You're still seeing it with a critical eye. And, you know, I, I can I can appreciate the game through the way people have reacted to it, hmm. um, but it's still hard for me to play through it and experience it in anything except 
showing someone. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's I, I can never I, it's hard for me to enjoy it for myself. I have a controversial question for you. <laughs> kind yeah. of. It's kind of controversial. I I don't play video games as, as much as I used to. And one of the reasons I don't play video games as much as I used to is they don't seem to be finished. <laughs> there seems mm. to be a kind of a lot of a day one a day one patch which is almost the kind mm-hmm. of the same the same size. Is that um do you think that's just going to become the kind of the norm? Because there seems to be a lot of games which almost seem to be moving to a, a kind of we send out the product and then we're going to build on that as we go. I've seen it kind of mm-hmm. very, done very, very successfully, but it seems to be the kind of the games which don't have massive amounts of stuff. I mean, Fortnite, for instance, seems to be going through iteration after iteration, particular types of games like Overwatch and things like that. But... um you know, I, I, obviously, day one patches to me are just, they're just like a mystery because I came from the Super Nintendo right. era and the Spectrum game kind of era. And as a, once you shipped the game, it was impossible to kind of send out improvements because you couldn't patch a game. Right, so is that right, kind of, right. Is that kind of, do you have to, I mean, is it a kind of, I don't know, because it just strikes me as a kind of a weird, a weird kind of thing. You wouldn't get that kind of like in board games. <laughs> I mean, I, you, the, I was just going to say, actually, weirdly, I mean, you do, though, right? Because the, people are, they're putting out, you know, updated components and yeah, erotica for rules and that sort of thing. I mean, it's, you have to hope that the game sort of works as it was shipped. But you, you got me imagining what a ZX Spectrum pack should look like, like them just sending out <laughs> strips of magnetic tape that you splice onto the cassette, which would be pretty spectacular. You used to get, um, and this is, this is going to show my age, but you used to get, um, you used to be able to, to kind of do a merge command on a Spectrum game. And what it would allow oh, you to really? do, it allowed oh, you to, no, it allowed you to um, select merge. And then when you played, when you started the loader on the tape, it would allow, it would stop it at a certain place or it would allow you to insert code in a certain place. So you could type up kind of cheat codes and stuff like that. And oh, you that's could. That's so good. You could insert the kind of the code to the cheats into the game beforehand. Obviously, later on, you got um, cheat code cartridges for uh-huh. Super Nintendos and Mega Drives, where you could basically you would put a, an interfacing cartridge between the game and the actual console, and it would right it would like do a it, Game you know? Genie type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's funny. Well, first, like. I yeah, I, as someone that did have a ZX Spectrum growing up, uh, yeah, as someone that I was saying like didn't have access to a lot of these consoles, somehow my mother had a ZX Spectrum, so that's incredible. We may have had like one of the only ZX Spectrums in South Africa, <laughs> but so I uh, yeah, I, I am super familiar with tape loading errors and all of that jazz. Wow. Um, but the that that sort of stuff is, I want to say like it's it, it's such a hard conversation, right? Because. I, I think if you were to ask any of these developers that had developed on these old systems, like, don't you wish you could have fixed some of these known problems after the fact? I mean, to me, that's obviously, to me, that seems like a massive improvement. Like, the, the ability to patch fix this stuff is yeah. one of the most incredible things about about software right now. Like, we're in an age where your car is getting updates over the air, right? Like, it's it's one of the most fundamental shifts in this sort of technology where the product that you receive doesn't have to be the peak of its ability, 
right? No. And I think, like yeah. I said, a lot of these games lean into this, like your online, your MMOs, obviously they're reliant on the fact that the stuff is just constantly changing all the time. The day one patch thing is tricky. I, I think the reason the reason why it's become so prevalent is because games got very big and games got very expensive. Uh, and the reality is at some point before the end of a project, you have to say, okay, we're, we're done with this because we have X amount of time to literally manufacture this game. Yeah. Um, and because internet at pretty high speeds is as prevalent as, and I know that that's a pretty privileged position and that's not always true of everywhere of everyone everywhere in the world, but it's almost like it's, it's a period of time where if you had issues that made it through production because you know once the game goes gold we don't just you know turn off the computers and go home like people are still testing it people are still playing it and unfortunately a lot of these sort of very like pernicious big problems rear their heads in the six weeks between like manufacture and release uh so it's just a matter of well we could just leave the game as is but you're probably going to end up with a bad experience for those people that happen to stumble upon these major issues um so it's just it's it's one of those things that I, I get consumer aggravation towards it, but it's ultimately better for the product. In my opinion. It's a it's moving away, I think, from as you say, from a, a fixed game to a movable feast. I mean I remember um I remember playing Bloodborne on the PlayStation and I remember the the first version of the game that came out, I bounced off it head heavily because the loading screens were terrible and they took mm. ages and it just was a completely different experience. You go back now and there has been patches that have gone through and improved the game. Some games use patches almost like seasons. I mean, like, let's face sure. it, looking at Overwatch and things like that as well. Um, was, <laughs> I take it, now try to bring this back round to things again which is what we're meant to be talking to but this is far too interesting <laughs> anyway did your game employee co-workers become your friends then I mean with you being in the middle of nowhere surrounded I, I think, obviously by like minded people did a lot of these people kind of help almost become like a substitute family for the family that you you know that were still back in kind of South Africa yeah I think definitely from that perspective, like when you describe it as, as a family, like absolutely. Cause, cause one of the things, um, you know, when I came in at the tail end of a project and, uh, you know, everyone, there's this camaraderie that happens just over, you know, as you're trying to finish a game. Yeah. Um, that said, I, I came into the studio pretty young. So, and, and I, I would say the people in my department at the time weren't kind of, you know, we're all sort of either, had were married with kids who so were in different stages of their lives so i i struggled and also at that point in time like i was a very um i was a very you know, i still am extremely nerdy but much more introverted much more socially anxious person mm -hmm. um so i struggled honestly for the longest time to integrate into just going out and meeting people and making friends um i i probably could have i mean certainly the studio would have been the right environment to try do that but i i just wasn't in the right state of mind for it in the first year um yeah but that said uh it, one of the things i sort of specifically tried to do after that game shipped was force myself to to do that to go out to uh meet people and you know somehow circling this back around to to board games is like that's how 
that was my first friend group was me just deliberately saying, okay, I'm going to go find a meetup. I've, like I said, I had seen these, these modern board games in South Africa. I'm going to try to find a group of people to play them with. I didn't know anything about the hobby at the time. I was like, I, so that was my first sort of foray into the hobby was just literally showing up at a, at a meetup and saying, hey, let's play some board games. And I'm still, those are all still my closest friends right now. Did you go pre-packed? I mean, did you go out and kind of have a pile of games to bring in with you? No, 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 nothing. I Yeah, I didn't have anything. Because like, even the, the, you know, I had maybe one modern hobby board game um, mm. that I didn't bring with me. It was like the the Warcraft board game or something, the, wow. the, the Fantasy Flight one. And it, that's not a good game. But so I didn't bring that with me, but um, I, yeah, no, I just, I just showed up and cause they were, they were quite willing. My, my friend Dean, who sort of hosts this game night that we're actually where I met Kellen and Mark eventually. Um, they, they, he was excellent about just sort of, you know, I didn't know anything and he was just, here are all the games. If any of these look cool, we can teach you them and teach you how to play them. And um, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And, and, and a large, a large part of that was me discovering what board games could be i guess because the resistance i think was a good early example of something where i just i was like wait what there's like next to nothing here except us shouting at each other for for (laughs) half an hour this is amazing um so yeah it was like a it was an education and a surprise all at once while i was making you know really really good friends how quickly did you and say like kellen and Mark become, did you meet them both at the same time or did you meet one before the other kind of thing? So I'd, I'd met Kellen first and this is, so I want to say, I'm trying to remember the exact time on this, but, but I, it was definitely Kellen first, but maybe by a year or two. Um, mm. It's funny like how hard it is to actually remember specifically. But um, so Kellen, so surprisingly, uh, even though this board game group was obviously a bunch of really great nerdy people, there weren't that many people that were into video games uh, that much. So Kellen, um, being someone who was also a very avid video gamer, we just sort of like clicked pretty quickly. Um, so that so we we were uh, we were pretty close at that at the game group at the time, and then Mark I think shows up maybe a year or two later, and. I mean, if you've ever if you've ever spoken to Mark, I, I think you'd be sort of hard pressed to meet anyone that has a deep knowledge of the hobby, and because he has literally every board game ever made somewhere in his garage. <laughs> That's why I'm kind of bringing. He's the kind of, as I say, he's the Return of the Jedi special with all <laughs> yes. of the special effects. <laughs> exactly. You know. Um, so yeah, and and I I didn't at that point like Kellen's also someone that is more invested in the hobby than than most people like he's he's scouring at that point in time and and still still constantly is scouring board game geek for you know unheard of gems and that sort of thing so they obviously sort of connected just on their deep knowledge of board games and at this point in time i'm also getting deeper into the hobby buying a lot of my own games and being one of the few people at at that point that's sort of trying to bring new games because uh, because uh, our, our friend dean who hosts it has this massive collection so we never felt like we were wanting for games but at that point in time the the hobby is just like blowing up you know for four or five years ago um and i think I, I think the three of us just very quickly connected um it just in terms of like wanting that really deep insight into like the behind the scenes of the hobby and just enjoying playing games with each other honestly 
Yeah, I, I kind of get... It's really funny because while when you listen to the show, you guys are quite willing to be quite abrasive to each other. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like the way that a pack of wolves would play internally within the pack that you snap uh-huh. and you bite at each other occasionally and you have kind of like a little bit of rough verbiage. But if yeah. some if somebody else came in from outside the pack and started, say, you know, saying something nasty about Kellen, I've got a really kind of, you know, I got a really kind of gut feeling that everybody would kind of like turn around and just tear strips off this person. So you kind of, you kind of get, it's kind of like you guys, obviously, there's a lot of respect kind of flying around with you guys because I don't think that you can sit and have the level of discussions that you have, um, without there being a bit of respect kind of kicking about. I think you, it's obviously you guys are kind of hung around and it's not a case that it doesn't sound like you guys are like a couple of people that got together to record a podcast. It's like, it's a case that you guys had been hanging about for a while and then said, well, the podcast is probably the next best thing to do. Yeah, that, that's pretty much exactly it. Because I, I think the way we remember it is so much is that we... When the way we would play games um, would be just because I think Kellen and Mark were more naturally competitive than I would have been at the time. But it's hard not to play a game with them and sort of just get that same one to like mm. bite back, as you said. So I, I think our games would like typically just devolve into us like being snarky with one another and just like like you know snipping at each other in, in the game. Uh, and that was always just super fun and super funny because it was backed by this like you say like a, a mutual respect um we all we knew we knew that we liked and respected each other and it just made it meant that we could have those sorts of interactions i mean obviously mm. at various points in time there are hurt feelings but like it, it's all in this mutual understanding like hey if if this happened we're still friends at the end of this you know you you're never like going into any of these um incidents thinking of this is going to break the friendship. Like, I, I just, I can't imagine that ever happening because of this, of the, like a, a mutual understanding. Um, and as far as that sort of evolved into outside of board games, we ended up just talking a lot. Like we would, we would end like a game night session and just be sort of talking about specific things in the hobby or uh, specific games or specific mechanics of designers. And I, I think we all just got the, the sense that we were, we were having fun doing it. Fun, we were having fun talking about it, so it 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 seemed, and this is maybe arrogant to say, but it seemed like it would be easy just to turn on the microphones and talk and record that, and we were like, well, people will want to hear this, right? And you know that that's definitely in retrospect, you know, a little bit self-involved, but I mean, it, there, there's something to it because that's that's kind of what we do. We we just record us gathered around a table, like talking about games, and I think the thing is. A large part of the appeal of the appeal is exactly that: is it's it sounds like three close friends just talking around a board game table because that's literally what it is. Do you um do you feel okay? Well, two parts. Were you surprised at how kind of quickly a lot of people kind of embraced the show? That a lot of people kind of went. Yeah, this is good. I'm enjoying this. The number of were you surprised in the kind of the uptake and the number of people that started kind of tuning in? At, at various points, definitely, because there there are, you know, we if you look back on sort of the 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 
the download sort of history of the podcast. You know, there's a, there's a slow growth initially, and then there's really good convincing spikes. And every time one of those happens, you sort of have the sense like, oh, maybe that we're we're onto something here. And you know, some of those are like the the first time we're mentioned like independently on Reddit, and it, there is this kind of surprise. It's like, oh, this is this is resonating with people. Like there is there is maybe something here that isn't being done in the same way and i you know i would be hard pressed to describe exactly what that is but uh yeah i I think it's definitely been surprising but but like i said not it's not been this constant like basking in our glory or anything like that we just have these we have these moments where so for example the first time we were recognized at all ever at a convention was just this it it was this we were just all dumbfounded by it like the 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 (laughs) idea that anyone you know would have done that and then one of the things that happened at gen con is kellen and i are walking past someone who like spins around and says i recognized your voice um and it's that it's it's yeah. it's a really bizarre thing but it's it's super gratifying and it's it, it i would say definitely surprising it, it still it still doesn't seem like something that really makes sense um but yeah it, it's not like we're you know, we're not at a level of fame or it, or anything like that. Where it, it's, um, mm. it hasn't gone into our heads just yet. I don't think. <laughs> I, I've seen Except Discord. I'm not, enti- I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, I know. <laughs> but we say, I know we say that. But at the same time, I mean, I guess the second part because okay, because you got mentioned by shut up and sit down. And they yeah. said, oh, right, you guys have got to get checked out. And then the next thing, you're being invited to um, Shucks, which is right. like the coolest thing ever. And I'm not jealous or bitter at all. I've learned to deal with that side of things, you know, how loved and how popular you are. That's fine. Do you feel under pressure now to expand on the level of content that you have? Is there a kind of because I see this, I do see this again and again, is that somebody will grow and then you'll see them starting to do all different types of content. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, they're going into videos and then they're going into written stuff and then they're doing additional kind of podcasts and then you see them going, I just, I need to take a break, I need to slow down because it's kind of of too much. Do you feel currently with things going the way that they are that you do need to start kind of producing additional content or are you actually saying guys let's you know we've got the numbers we're gaining the following they like us for what we're doing let's just continue doing that kind of thing yeah i think there's a lot that sort of factors into this um i I think if you were to ask well if you were to ask kellen specifically for example like uh, kellen has Mm. always been the driving force of uh, you know what's the next big thing we can do he he's just he's one of the most motivated uh growth oriented people i know and i think that he's been the largest sort of driving force in sort of in us pushing forward and he he does ask a lot of those questions which is like what is the next thing that we can do that will you know that will help us grow as a as a you know as a product as it were um but the flip side of that is he's also super adamant, and we all are. We're we're adamant about the idea that if we we know we cannot deliver something to what we would think is an acceptable level of quality, we're not going to to do it. Uh, so mm-hmm. obviously, um, you know, the the video thing comes up a lot. Um, we we have 
exactly uh, we have about no, no, we have a five or six videos on youtube that are just recordings of the podcast um and it's it's a lot of work to to be quite honest like video is um such a step up from audio in terms of the amount of preparation time you need to get lighting right and to um to get to get the quality to look good to go to happen to, to record seamlessly without any issues to edit especially um and the thing that is hard, which I think is the second side of this, is that I don't think anyone in this industry on the media side is, you know, they're, they're not exactly quitting their day jobs to do this. And it, with, you know, with, with the exception of a handful of people. So there is always a limited amount of time and attention that you can do it unless you're going to lean 100% hard into it. Um all three of us are, you know, are, are working regular jobs in addition to the podcast. It's not this is not something that we can even remotely consider approaching full time, uh, and I think that's that is a it's a pretty big factor into where we want to focus our attention. Um, that said, um, I, I think it's it's something that we you know we're constantly are talking about. Like we uh, we want to try do more with video with either streaming board games um putting up video content that's maybe independent of the podcast i wouldn't say it's because of like a pressure to do it um because i think um i I think the podcast is still our strength in you know in terms of everything else that we've done um it's just about finding the right way to a make that something sustainable that we can do without it infringing on our personal lives um and still be able to produce it at an, at what we would consider like an acceptable level of quality. So we're, we're definitely like thinking about that sort of stuff. We just have no definite plans as yet. Yeah, I think it sounds strange, but the people that I know that are really, really good at doing this content creation as a hobby mm-hmm. are usually really quite good at what they do in their day-to-day job because they're yeah. naturally, they've naturally got a kind of a talent for kind of where they are so the barrier for them to kind of move to being full-time all of a sudden becomes incredibly higher because it's like well I've got you know I've got to match this kind of level of income which makes it you know in some cases it just makes it a, a pipe dream and it does kind of push it back down to kind of being a hobby and I think um, um, you've also got to have a huge number of people kind of interested in your in what you're offering as well I think more than what a lot of people will ever will ever achieve not because they're not good just because the kind of the the, the board game fandom in relation to other things isn't right it's, it's, just, it's, it's not, not there yet it's just not there and it's not a, it's not that they're not there I think there are people that are doing it but I just I think that um there's not enough people doing that side of things. And you know what I mean? As in, they're willing to say, right, I'm going to jump in and support these people. There's right, still an awful absolutely. lot. We've got a lot of people who love our content because they don't have to pay for it kind of thing. And I yeah. know of kind of successful podcasts where there's been backlashes when they try to monetize certain parts of their product. And people have said, well, we're used to having that for free. And if we are paying for it, we expect it to be the highest of the highest because we're kind of giving you money kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it's a kind of a double, a double edged sword. Um, I'm 
just going to keep doing this until I speak to everybody that's ever been involved in tabletop. <laughs> I think that's my kind of my my kind of my kind of um, my kind of way forward. Um, so in once terms you've gone through like, all all three board game podcasts, then that's it. That's it. That's it done. <laughs> I think what I'm going to do is Mark is going to be my last ever episode. Right. You I mean, know, and then yeah. I think I'm going to finish it off with the actual Return of the Jedi music with Luke. Right. Every you know, story walks. has to have some sort of like downward trajectory to the you know the parabola. Exactly. Well, you know, pretty much kind of, pretty much kind of thing. Um, is there stuff? Is there stuff that you would still like to kind of um, do with you know what you're doing just now? I mean, if if kind of like is it, would you like to kind of do kind of if time was not, if somebody said, okay, I'm going to give you two weeks and I'm going to give you $25,000 and you can uh-huh. just go, go crazy and stuff like that. If if money and time wasn't an object, is there a certain kind of project that you would like to do in terms of content creation for the board game kind of thing? Or are you just happy kind of, look, the podcast here, I'm enjoying it. I don't want it to become a job kind of thing. Um, I, I'm sort of halfway between. Like, I, I'm always, I'm always excited for like, what what could be the next thing? I, I think one of the things that we've spoken about a lot and we think that we we could make pretty successful is is like we said, just like live you know, recording the podcast, um, having that be something that maybe gets live streamed that people could sort of like chime in on, you know, in real time. I, I don't know how viable that is, but it, it's something that we're investigating. Um in terms of like other board game content, uh yeah, I'm not really sure. Um I, I think I, w- I, li- I would like the idea of us um, maybe recording more of our plays because I, I think, like I said, one of the things that characterized us even before the podcast was having that sort of like that energy and that fightiness, like even in the way we play games. And I think yeah. that would be something that people would enjoy watching, quite honestly. Um, but streaming setups, especially for board games, are you know, a logistical nightmare in terms of camera placement and you have to have one that's got a good view of the of the board game and you have to have some way to mm-hmm. like switch yeah. between them. So I, yeah. I, I think that would be it. If 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 I had my twenty five thousand dollars in two weeks, it would be creating like a camera environment where I could just flip a switch and have a board game streaming setup because as it is right now, like I said, this is still up. Just we're, we're just operating from a room in my place, and I sort of have to move things in and out of the way every single time mm-hmm. we we do anything. Uh, yeah. Having a dedicated space where we could just record and play games and sort of broadcast that to the world, I think that would be fantastic. I'd love to I'd get like to that point. I've seen one app called Vorpal Board, yeah, which I, I think t- I allows you this. to scan everything and things like that. Yeah. And I'd be interested to see. I think that could potentially be an interesting thing to kind of. To kind of help it, um, are you are you guys planning on getting kind of more guests on then? Because I noticed you had, um, you know, I noticed you've had Paula Deming on who right. um, stole my color tank, um, raging. <laughs> in, where, well, where? I've I've actually gone for indigo now, so you know, you're going to reserve that color. I am going to try to. Um, <laughs> yeah, we. I think we're we're definitely hoping to. Um, it it's. It's one of the things that it's it's more of a of a logistical problem of just because we the one thing that we were quite adamant about is because one of the things we the thing we did with Paula which I thought worked especially well was just literally getting her into the room and saying you are now on the board game podcast you are one of the co-hosts you've always been here 
we're going to turn on the microphones and hit record. Um, and that's, you know, that's not always an easy entry point for, for everyone. Um, but yeah, we, we, we're definitely, we're definitely hoping to get more guests on. That's for sure. Have you, but I mean, Paula's naturally, I mean, the content that they're putting out at the moment is that. Oh yeah. She's fantastic. Absolutely. She's fantastic. Um, have I don't you seen know the nearest if, one where she just like ribs on a bunch of different yes. content makers. That's yes, super I, good. Yes, I absolutely hated it. Um, I absolutely, <laughs> I went around um, pretty much drop kicking puppies. I was so annoyed, <laughs> and I went, "Look at this person! They're so absolutely How talented. talented. They are, yeah, exactly. How could they be any more talented?" Um, so you know, yeah, jealous, slightly, yeah, a lot, pretty much. You know, there's that kind of thing, but it's just, yeah, I mean, but we need, but we need something like this in the board game space. We need to move away from, I think, people standing in front of boxes and talking about stuff. And that's not a slight on anybody that stands in front of boxes and talking about stuff. But I think we're potentially at that place where um, we need to, uh, you know, welcome to that. We're open to that. And I think people are looking for that kind of thing, which is why when you get, you know, um, Paula and Kiki doing the box flip video, everybody went absolutely mental right, for it right. and thought it was fantastic. And when Rodney just did the box flip out takes, and I think people are looking for that kind of comedy. And comedy is really, really difficult to do in video format. It either works or it kind of dies. Totally. Have you have you listened to Death by Monsters yet? I I have. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we we made a point to because I I think it was it was pretty much there were only like a couple of episodes at the point that Paula came on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So I I made sure to like listen to all of that at that point. It, it's it's a really good show. Again, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, yes, but, absolutely. But it also, but again, um. like, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the the thing with that, like, like you say, it it's, um. It completely lives and dies on like the the charisma and the personalities of the people hosting it, and all, I mean, all three of them are are so good at it. Yeah, I mean, Matthew Matthew just just Matthew's just funny. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 funny and annoyingly personable, and just it's ah, uh, they they're great. I just I don't know. I feel the rage building inside me. Um, <laughs> and. T- you know, I'm just like, that, that's you know. the worst part, right? Is when you, you you see someone that's so talented and they're also a nice person. And it's I've like, met well, Matthew I, how, Jude. Yeah, no, I've we, met we, Matthew we, we Jude. did too. And he's 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 horribly charming. I wanted to hate him. I went, I met him at Aircon and I went <laughs> I went first of all, I went first of all, because I've spoken to him on the show. And I went, first of all, I like your voice. Secondly, you're not a bad looking chap. And it's like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm walking on here. I'm going to shake your hand and you're going to just, you're going to say something that's make me going to go, yes, hallelujah. He's an actual asshole, but he's not. And he's a really, really nice guy. Yeah. It never happened. He was a charming, pleasurable, you know, just a nice, nice guy. And you know, that is, I just, you know, I'm screaming internally while I'm talking to him at the same right, time. It just right. doesn't, it just doesn't kind of make it. But yeah, Death by Monsters, check it out. Um, but in terms of yourselves, no, in terms of yourself, I mean, at the moment, obviously with the board games, there seems to be like 20 million mm-hmm. kind of board games kind of out and about. Is there anything that you're kind of wanting to get your hands on that you're wanting to kind of get to the table? So, 
if, if we're talking about looking ahead, and I guess it's actually not that far off now, um, I think like a lot of people, I sort of went on that tapestry binge with the way that Jamie Stegmaier has yeah. been sort of like doling out the the, the content and the, the videos for that. Um, yeah. I am. I am. I don't want to say I'm skeptical about some things. I, I am very excited to play it. Like uh, I, there is something that that Jamie does, which I think is pretty rare in this industry still. Which he he is very good at creating exciting moments in in kind of just the in board game media. Like the, obviously the sort of the hullabaloo of wingspan was kind yeah. of second to none in this industry. And the way that the way that he's been sort of um, you know doling out sort of content for tapestry. Uh, it's it's just got people talking about this one board game in a way that I haven't seen pretty much since Wingspan. Uh, I think those those big exciting moments are so few and far between that I'm I'm all ready to get to sort of like you know just all aboard the hype train for that basically. Uh, I but having now sort of like looked at the rules and sort of looked into what it's about, I, I kind of love civilization games, so I, I'm excited oh. for that. Yeah, me too. You yeah. know. He's another one to put in the pile. Jamie, stop it, kind of thing. Basically, <laughs> stop being so talented. Um, other than that, um, I I don't know. I'm I, I'm I'm sort of looking around my room because I I, I definitely have games that was like sitting on the floor here that I would like to get played. Um, but yeah. but nothing that's jumping to mind. I, I'm still like I'm very close to the tail end of a Gloomhaven campaign. Like I would like to uh. see how that all wraps up because we're now you know thirty something missions in and it's about it's all coming to an end. Uh, so that's exciting. But I, I think the thing that's become apparent is that there's always there's always something new every other week, whether you want it a lot. I, I think there also there are a couple of like Kickstarters that are hitting soon that I'm almost certainly not going to be able to get to play, but would like to believe I'm going to. Yeah, Kickstarters are quite. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind Ooh. of. I've not fallen out of love with Kickstarter. I'm still excited by Kickstarter, but um, I'm kind of hedging my bets. I'm backing less and kind of looking more and seeing kind of how things kind of the hype dies down after yeah. the fact, basically. You know, but, yeah. we'll, but we shall see. I did play, however, for the first time. I played a Super Rhino Hero Battle today. Oh, nice! And. And it's brilliant. It is, yeah. I, I'm actually. It's funny. We we had we just recently spoke about dexterity games, and I think that one slipped all of our minds. That it's so fun. I just loved it. I me and my me and my son. Um, he got up at his usual ridiculous o'clock on a Sunday morning, and um, I brought it back from uh, Tabletop Scotland, um, okay. which where I was at yesterday, and uh, he says, "I said we'll play it." And he went, okay. And I says, he says, how do you play it? And I was like, well, here's the rule book. And of course, the rule book's in multiple languages. So it looks about 20, 30 pages, 30 right. pages thick. Um, but no, we were up and playing it and we must have played it about five or six times. And it was just, <laughs> it was just absolutely fantastic. It was absolutely brilliant. So it was cool. So that's it. Apart from that, it's just the usual, you know, we're just waiting to try and get some more games to the table that I've got already and trying to, um, curb my fear of missing out which i think kind of affects kind of all of right, us. But, right all of us yeah. yeah how do you feel in general about this because we, we this is one of the things we sort of talked about really recently and that it's oh sorry we talk about this pretty frequently and that one of the things that's kind of a problem it be, it seems like it's becoming a problem in this hobby is that the expectation of any single game that you buy is that you will probably only play it like two to three times uh how does that is that something like bugs you especially? 
I think um, what I've started to do is try to get games kind of played more. I think and sometimes it's like, um, I think if we did a direct, going back to kind of video games, if you did a direct comparison about the number of hours you were likely to sink into like a a $40 video game over a $40 board game, I reckon the comparison would absolutely terrify people as to how how little value they're actually getting out of their board yeah, game collection. For sure. Because I mean, you know, I've I say for instance, if I um there's games I would quite easily put 40, 50, 60 hours in again and again and again. You know, the entire Dark Souls series, I would right. you know, if there is seven hundred hours on that and it must have cost me the best part of like about thirty pounds thirty pounds or about you know, thirty five dollars at the time. Yeah. Whereas you know, I've got copies of other kind of games they're like um GKR heavy hitters, which have probably got to the table about three or four times at the most, mm-hmm. and each of those games was only about two hours long. Right. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a tricky one because it, it is because yeah, th- because video games, even you know if they're on the seven or eight hour end of the spectrum, like most people would tell you that that's bad value for money, and then yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. like that that doesn't compare to like how little you generally get out of a same priced board game. <laughs> It's just, I think um, it'll get to the point where there will be people that will, after spending kind of like $100 on Kickstarter games again and again and again, I don't think that's particularly a a sustainable market. Right. I think you'll get to the point where as, and especially as um, um, kind of exchange rates go the way that they're going. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us at the moment, the exchange rate for us is absolutely terrible. It is almost like it's not too much of a a kind of a it's just almost comparable directly with a dollar i mean it's it's not close but it's certainly worse than it used to be and now a hundred a hundred dollar game is kind of creeping up towards being 85 nine you know 85 87 pounds which does make a huge difference because it used to only be 65 pounds so the comparison wise that wasn't it wasn't like an awful lot and yeah, it's just that kind of that whole kind of expensing and then knowing that I'm going to have to wait two, three, sometimes you get a Kickstarter and you're waiting two, three months before you even play it once you get everybody together. Because I think there's a lot of people that want to just sit down with a game that they've played before, get it to the table and crack on. And I think there's a lot of groups where you see there's the rule people and you just see a group of, te- a group of four people sitting around the table with one person kind of thumbing through the rules, try to teach everybody the rules as they go. And I think people yeah. are getting a bit bored of that, you know? So. Totally. And it's, it's something that seems very specific to Kickstarter where there are just these really big box productions that are A, a pain to get to the table and uh, B, like yeah. you say, like don't have overly complicated rules that you typically, because I mean, I, I have a couple of examples like this. So, so, the, the uh, nemesis this sort of alien cooperative yeah. game that came out it, it's a, you know it's a massive amount of content the rules are are kind of just not not bad necessarily but they're it's quite an overly complicated game in some ways and it's a game that i want to play more of but then just literally the idea of me thinking about okay i would have to get the two people i knew that like to play it in the in the room <laughs> with me at some point uh to set up this massive game and probably relearn the rules so that I can reteach it because God knows none of us remember how to play it. Um, it is it is such a weird thing where 
at, on the other hand, we could all play a game. We could play three or four games that we know and are familiar with, uh, even if it's not a game that we played a bunch before, but the rule sets are not that convoluted. I, I do think that Kickstarter is probably due for some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, um, rude awakening, I guess, in terms of how many of these big scale projects there are and how many, like I said, are even sustainable in the long course of things. Yeah, we'll see. I think um, especially the, the if this trade war keeps on going, I think yeah. we'll see a, a massive hit on kind of things starting to come in and then people that thought they were spending you know $70 on a game are going to realize that they're going to end up having to stick an extra 25 bucks on the top of that right and I think that might kind of burn a kind of a couple of people as well but I don't know you never see there's always going to be the crowd I mean I keep thinking that you know this is the year that um, Kickstarter kind of levels out a bit and then there's always a campaign that's hitting like six and a half million dollars, right. eight million dollars, ten million dollars, and you're just like, well, maybe you know, not. Here we go. Yeah, you know. So it's all, it's all, it's all fun. Um, for people who haven't listened to um your wonderful podcast, the Board Game Barrage, before. Do you want to just tell, give people a, a quick kind of the elevator pitch? on who you are, what you talk about, and why they should listen. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I guess in summary, we are a podcast of uh, three three close friends, myself, Mark, and Kellen, who uh, met each other just playing board games with each other, sort of found a commonality in our mutual love of the hobby and enjoying being sort of snarky and snippy with each other in a way, you know, in a friendly jabbing sort of way. And we translated that into a podcast where we're pretty, pretty direct about sort of calling people out on their <laughs> relative tastes. Uh, so we're, yes. we're we're pretty fighty. Um, if if people have opinions that we think are bad, we will generally call them on it. Uh, and it's it's a it's a fun I would say a fun sort of feisty uh, podcast that um, is pretty much just us arguing about board games, talking about uh, the stuff that we've been playing. Uh, the other thing we typically do is we sort of dive into, I want to say, um, maybe potentially like the more philosophical side of the hobby, like the uh, the dangers of collecting, uh, the way you would sort of interact with game groups and sort of what that means. So we, we tend to have like a feature topic, which is some sort of avenue of the ho- of the hobby that we just want to sort of discuss in depth. Um, but yeah, in general, we're just talking and chatting and laughing about board games. And it's very, very good. And I just, you know, and sometimes I listen and I laugh and sometimes I listen and I cry because I realize <laughs> that you're you're better than us. But you can't have it all. Um, if people want to keep an eye on where you are on the internet webs, where do you exist on the internet webs? How do we find you? So the... The podcast you could pretty much get anywhere. I think any major podcast outlet, so you know Apple Podcasts, Google Play, that sort of thing. Uh, our website is boardgamebarrage.com, so you could find links to the podcast there as well. Um, yeah, and we have a a YouTube channel which it doesn't have a whole lot right now, but we're hoping to get more into. Um, yeah, I think anywhere you search for board game barrage, you should find us in some form. Excellent. I will. Um make sure 
that these links go in the show notes so that we've got notes to show. Um, if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, it's quite simple. Go to go to the internet web, search for We Are Not Wizards. You'll find us on Twitter. You'll find us on Facebook. You'll find us on Instagram. You'll find us on our blog, which is wearenotwizards.blogspot.com. You'll find us on our website, which is wearenotwizards.com. You'll find us all on the podcast catchers. Some of them have got the word pod. Some of them have got the word cast. Some of them have got are clever and have got neither, like Player <laughs> FM. But you will find us there. You'll also find us on Apple Podcasts. But due to the fact that Apple have decided to destroy their own category system, oh yeah, the joke, the joke that I have been doing for the last three hundred and fifteen odd episodes no longer applies. However, if you are a person that does like your nostalgia, you can still go there and give us a rating or a subscription or a review. If you are going to be giving us a rating. Don't give us 10 stars because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us one star because it makes us cry. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's average. It's just a little bit average. But the person who's not being average is rather wonderful, rather fantastic. Neilan from Board Game Barrage. Thank you, Thank you so very, much. Very, Thank you very, very much, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show. Um, there are only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Neilan? I'm pretty sure I'm not. Yay! I might be. <laughs> and the other thing <laughs> and the other thing is to say goodbye. So it's uh, goodbye from Neilan. Say goodbye, Neilan. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, make something awful. Episode two is out. But until the next time, goodbye. A wizard is never linked. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.